Blog Talk Radio. Right now, 
We're going to get started with our party by first and foremost introducing you to our political panelists and analysts. And then we discuss the first segment of this program, which entails what's going on in your world and the community, followed by a discussion as it reflects the theme tonight, which is information, education, and liberation. So we're going to get started with our party tonight by first introducing you to Brother Hack. Brother Moses. We're going to bring Brother Moses in first. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Okay. Um, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. And my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years. 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm I'm, uh, pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome as well to Africa on the Move. Brother Africa, my name is Haki Gamaki Mashoka, and first of all, thanks for having me. You know, of course, you know my thing is all about institution building, but I got to tell you, Brother Africa, one of the things I find very ironic is that when we talk about religion, uh, you know, uh, we think of religion in terms of being a great benefit to humanity. But, in fact, when you actually study religion, one of the things that are very clear, that this, this prophecy um, um, uh, motivation, this prophecy belief that exists among many Christians is actually a tantamount to bringing to exist in a very dystopian world in which you have all kind of evil, all kind of injustice pervading the society. So although it's very, very interesting in terms of this paradox in terms of, you know, on one hand, something that's supposed to be good, in, in, in all reality, it turned out to be something very, very bad. In any event, uh, in that, on that line, I just want you to listen to this, something I was thinking about and I, I wrote down. Now, spirituality has not encompassed human, human thought. From the beginning of human history in excess of 200,000 years, ancient Africans, the progeny of human beings, gazed upon the stars contemplating the meaning of life, its very existence. The genesis of African consciousness or unconsciousness, depending on your point of view, concluded all things or material existence is interconnected. The doggone people in Mali, Central Africa, 500 years prior to the evolution of Greece, were among the first to espouse the relationship between the cosmos and human existence. Now, recently, an astrophysicist and a neurosurgeon compared a neural network of the human brain and a neural pathway of the cosmos. Aside from similar structure, both operate in a similar way, both processing stimuli and making complex analysis of energy and matter. Now, interesting, as first, the first astrologers, the doggone were able to calculate the movement of celestial bodies and their impact on the earth and their subsequent impact on human beings. Much of what the doggone extrapolated thousands of years ago is increasingly being corroborated by quantum physics today. Studies like neuromelanin studies pertaining to human birth, neurobiology, transmission of thoughts and feelings, have long believed to be transceivers, receptors of sorts, shaping in some cases, sharpening human perception. This ability to perceive exists within all human beings. 
Embedded in African DNA as Africans migrate to different parts of the world, this genetic marker is evidence of a common pursuit of life's meanings among human beings. Africans have the spiritual belief that human psychic, matter, environment, and spirit were all interconnected. The supposition being, with this enlightened spirituality, all humans are interconnected, and abuse of humanity is tantamount to self-inflicted wounds, much like the concept of Ubuntu among the Zulus in South Africa. However, this belief system among Africans was not practiced universally. We got to keep in mind the first three popes of the Roman Church happened to be African: Pope Victor, Pope Melitades, and Pope Galatius were all African people who were lockstep in terms of the uh, Roman Catholic Church and all that means in terms of the kind of negativity that the religion pushed in respect to its relationship with, with the people in, in the society. Now, also in Kemet, ancient Africa. The mystery system was utilized stressing the importance of mastering all academic disciplines, math, science, history, etc., as a means to enlighten their spirituality. Even though the concept was positive, the negative side was not everyone was privy to the system. However, for those who practiced and carried forth the early tenets of spirituality, it was reflected in political and social systems that elevated equality as a way of life. Interestingly enough, the idea of equality could only exist to the extent human consciousness perceives everything as alive. Examples. Behaviors negatively impacted on one aspect of creation does not end with this transaction being continued. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, behaviors negatively impacted on one aspect of creation does not end with that transaction, but continues to reverberate. Killing animals may be considered a sport, but where does the killing stop? Tupac Shakur, the rapper, Thug Life, acronym for the hate you gave the infants fucks everyone, is a testament to the enduring nature of inequality if left unchecked. Historically, African spirituality, often viewed as arcane or threatening, understood the potential harm that could be inflicted on all aspects, all aspects of creation, whether interpersonal nature, the value of animal life, or the planet. Destruction to creation is irrefutable. Now, the question for religion is: What role will religion play, or what role will the lack of spiritualism play in terms of the problems that we're currently experiencing? Now, there is no question. Now, Western church conflict centered around spirituality and its role has contributed to humanity's death spiral. Conflict between the Roman Catholic Church and reformers like Martin Luther argued over form as opposed to essence. Martin Luther advocated separation from the Roman church, not for the harm inflicted upon the poor, but the proceeds or monies received by the church, which was mandated by the church. It appeared Martin Luther was less concerned about creation and more focused on the shipping of funds flowing from the poor. Who would benefit financially was pivotal to his motivations. Martin Luther attempted to discredit the Roman Church, Roman Church by discrediting the infallibility of popes. Now, everyone can agree certainly that uh, no human being is tantamount to a creation. So, at that point, uh, his, his, uh, his motivations were, were, were understandable. Next, under the 95 Thesis, he designated the slogan, We Walk by Faith, Not Sight. Implicit in the slogan is the Reformed Church should not be questioned over matters of religion. Criticizing the Roman Catholic Church was okay, but criticism of the Reformed Church would not be tolerated. Perhaps the most telling of his motivations was removal of the Book of James from the New Testament. This was significant because the Book of James of the Old Testament espoused an African context that laid out the relationship between all things. Implicit in the Book of James was the destructiveness of class, destructiveness of materialism, destructiveness of wealth, uh, things that did not define spirituality. Spirituality was believed was achieved by understanding human relationships to the universe. This fundamental understanding of spirituality was, was obscured by biblical Western 
translation in the 14th, 16th century, uh, which which Martin Luther King embraced. Martin Luther embraced by concealing the aspect of this aspect of spirituality, uh, the ancient aspect of spirituality. The Reformed Church and its beneficiary, the Evangelicals, capitalized on a church structure both profitable and resistant to change. In fact, this resistance to change was evident in the past presidential election in the United States. Trump was able to capture 73 million votes for the presidency. Evangelical support for Trump was overwhelming. Between 90 to 100 million people representing evangelicalism exist in the U.S. One in three citizens in the U.S. consider themselves evangelicals. The support he received from evangelicals was probable, but the question, of course, is why. Perhaps the notion Trump's uh, destructive antisocial policies will bring about the rapture. The rapture. The rapture being the destruction of humanity in mass, facilitating the second coming of Christ. When this sounds dystopian, you are absolutely correct. Unfortunately, the desire to elevate beliefs in conflict with the harmonious intent of enlightened spirituality has now been practiced by leaders among the Reformed Church in the U.S. In fact, one of the first steps implemented by the Reformed Church in colonial America was to prevent an awakening of the citizenry in regard to spirituality. Between 1730 and 1740, the Great Awakening was utilized to legitimize the role of the church. By persuading people purgatory or hell could be avoided by church attendance, the church was able to sail with Martin Luther back discredited in the early 16th century, and while at the same time convinced people salvation could be, could, could be achieved by rejecting spirituality. So clearly, the, 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 the problem for, 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 for the African community is twofold. On one hand, you've got a situation, you've got a political system which, which is antithetical to the interests of African people. On the second hand, you have, uh, you have a situation in which people, by virtue of their, their spiritual beliefs, believe that the, the, the subjugation or the persecution of African people is just and right simply because they see African people somehow anti-Christian or unchristian. So we've got some problems. See, one thing in terms of politically, you know, you can always have engaged in discourse to convince people that the way they think is wrong. But when someone thinks that, you know, uh, by virtue of, um, of, of some imagination, that in fact that their views are sanctioned by creation, then, that, then having that kind of discourse is very difficult to, to pull off, simply because such a person who has that kind of mindset is not predisposed to listen to what you have to say, because they're convinced that what they have to say comes directly from the creator. So clearly we got some problems in the African community in terms of what are we going to do in terms of how, which way forward in society. Now, when we talk about 90 to 100 million people, you talk about one in three people in society being, you know, evangelicals. Well, essentially what you're saying is that people are animally opposed to the uh, problems inflicted African people. So when you talk about homelessness, you talk about police killing, killing innocent African people, when you talk about injustice that generally permeates the society, uh, when, you're talking, when you're talking in context of these evangelicals, they don't see a problem. They see it more as a problem that's unique to the African community. In other words, all problems pertaining to African people are self-inflicted. And so, therefore, uh, the question in terms of the possibility for human beings to, to bring about change to address those issues for the evangelicals is something that they have hard pressed to believe, something because they believe you know, all things come from, you know, all ideas come from the Creator. And so, therefore, if African people are shut down in the street, then that's, in fact, what the Creator deems necessary and right. So clearly we got some problems in terms of this, this, this irony as it exists as it relates to religion and society. And so for, for African people, organization becomes indispensable in terms of you know, um, making it possible, you know, not only for the uh, survival you know, as a people, but also to, to also to create the uh, necessary uh, 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 
conditions that are favorable to ensure that our children uh, don't internalize all those negative, uh, all those negative uh, things that exist in society, which is earmarked toward, earmarked toward uh, the denigration of a people. So clearly, we have to have an organization. And having said that, I conclude, Brother Africa. And again, I want to thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing with our listening audience a certain aspect of African history that I'm quite sure many of us were not aware of. We thank you for that dissertation, Brother Haki. To our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. What we're going to do, we're going to take a revolutionary cultural break. When we come back, we're going to start our first segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. We'll start off with the first discussion on the concept of Africans buying guns, that struggle, that history, and we would like to pay a minute, a minute acknowledgement and honor our brother Kwame Ture. For those who don't know, this was actually 22 years ago. This was the day where you actually met Anwar Berry, when he made his transition on November 15, 1998. Of course, we welcome you to call in at 323-679-0841 to share with us what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Is my king, is my one, yes, he's my father, yes, he's my son, I can talk to him, cause he understands everything I go through and everything I am, he's my support system, I can't live without him, the best thing since Christ's bread is his kiss, his hug, his gifts, his touch, and I just want the whole world to know about my Give me what I need. I'm so proud that 
when he made when he talked about the fact that when he alluded to the fact that in his in his belief that rap music was instrumental in the rise of Donald Trump, I had to scratch my head. I, I you know I I do understand that uh, one of the peculiarities in the society is that there's a tendency for those positions of power to blame the blame the the, the, the less among us. And so, for, therefore, the, the, the less you have access to, to, to the media, the less the money you have access in terms of uh, uh, to centers of control, then the more likely you are to be demonized, to vilified, to be blamed for the problems that exist in society. So the mere fact that former President Barack Obama blamed rap music, I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't see the correlation. Number one, I, would, I, would, I, would, I, my, I believe that most evangelicals, uh, most religious types in, in the church don't listen to rap music because they see it as, God, as, as devil music. So they wouldn't listen to it first and foremost. And so for therefore for him to make that statement that in fact is, that it's attributable to, uh, to the rise of Donald Trump's, uh, it blows my mind. More importantly, it seems to me that, you know, if, if you're really concerned about in terms of the rise of Donald Trump, then you can't separate, that, separate the rise of Donald Trump from the overall um, general perception, or general views or positions taken by the masses of the people in the society. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of alienation. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of subjugation going on. And clearly, people are reacting to that. And for a lot of people, Donald Trump is perceived as some type of uh, savior. And, and some misguided belief that, in fact, if, he, if in fact he were elected, that, in fact, he resolved their problems. But, of course, those of us who understand the nature of politics, specifically when we talk about America, America politics, then we understand that this notion in terms of Donald Trump being a savior uh, was, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a smoke screen. That we understood that Donald Trump served the interests of the powerful. And like all presidents, they all serve the interests of the powerful. We knew no matter what he said, despite his populist rhetoric, we understand the reality was that he would serve the interests of the powerful, and he has done so. And so if despite that, even in the second term, he still got a tremendous amount of support from the masses of people, which speaks to the kind of, um, of hostility uh, that a lot of people in society have toward the disadvantaged, the oppressed, the marginalized in society, who, who once again, uh, this, you know, uh, despite uh, uh, Trump's inhumanity, want to see him positions of power to inflict more pain on the masses of people, inflict pain on humanity generally. So clearly, you know, uh, blaming rap music is just really a red herring. It has nothing to do in terms of the reality, in terms of the situation as we confront it with. And one of the things recently, the, um, the, um, federal, gov- the, the federal Reserve Chair, um, Jerome Powell, he made a statement in which he said that nothing's going to change. In other words, Jerome Powell is saying to you, when we talk about disparities between the have and the have-nots, we talk about the problems that people suffer from a lack of education, lack of uh, shelter, lack of uh, education, those kind of things that are so vital to human existence. Jerome Powell was very, very clear on that point. He said these kind of melodies, these kind of problems that impact human beings are going to proliferate. They're going to increase. They're not going to decrease. And when we talk about in terms of governmental Wall Street uh, nexus, which provides trillions and trillions of dollars to the most wealthy people on the planet, to the disadvantage of uh, to the uh, to the disadvantage of uh, the masses of people, particularly working pe- working in a poor people's society, then Jerome Powell said essentially that this this process in terms of giving lots of money to the wealthy is going to continue, despite the devastation that it's going to heap on the, the masses of people, uh, working people in a poor people's society. Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, saying it's going to continue. Why didn't Barack Obama point that out? Why why talk about rap music? Rap music is usually here or there. Rap music has no real power when it comes in terms of, you know, systematically, you know, what's going on in society. Now, Jerome Powell represents a system. 
He's telling you the system is going to continue doing what it's doing, irrespective of the pain and suffering it's going to cost. So why didn't Barack Obama do that? And I got to tell you, Brother Africa, one of the most dangerous things about when people like that, making people in power make statements like that, is that you lend credence, credence to the right wing who say that the problem uh, in terms that people are, are inflicted with is, is not a result of a system, but a result of people's own inadequacies. Once you get people to believe that people are their own worst enemies, that people are, in fact, responsible for all of the problems they're confronted with, you can really become an apologist for a system which routinely denigrates, oppresses, denies people the right to be a human being. So clearly uh, when someone, is, someone like Barack Obama, someone who represents the establishment, when he says things like this, he has to understand that what he's saying is tantamount to not only setting up African people and the poor people in society, but more importantly, to be you know creating a, a, a conditions in which you know the the, the carrying out a mass uh, destruction, a large number of people over relatively short periods of time, uh, uh, actually increases. So this is the problem when people like Eden Power does that. And so I certainly hope Barack Obama is an intelligent fellow. So he's got to understand that when you say things like this, it's going to be magnified by the media. He's got to understand that clearly when you say these kind of things that the implication for the masses of people in society, particularly working and oppressed people in society, it doesn't bode well for them, and that they're going to pay the price you know, for your very words that you espoused. So I, I, I call upon President Obama, so I know, um, uh, I know his, his people are listening. I certainly hope the message get back to him, you know, listen, that, you know, that those kind of words, you know, uh, are, are not um, the most in, in, in intelligent use of, of your verbiage. Perhaps you can you can express your way a different way and not uh, vilify or demonize uh, rappers who have no power whatsoever in terms of the kind of systematic abuse that take place in society. So, my, so uh, you know, I just reiterate once again, Brother Africa, you know, that I'm saying that uh, former President Barack Obama, you know, would, would articulate such a position given uh, the fact that uh, much of what he's saying, you know, like I said, the way to Heron it has nothing to do with reality per se. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. I'm glad to see Brother Haki has his mind on his people and his people on his mind, and he's able to point out those contradictions among the people. Um, Barack Obama, certainly, I'm sure, doesn't want to be antagonistic, but this this has this has certainly a, a contradiction that has certain amount of antagonism and especially in class struggle society as we find ourselves and uh and especially when we're faced with fascism and uh and basically saying that uh the brothers contributing to fascism the brothers and sisters in the rap industry are contributing to fascism ultimately and uh and certainly we don't want to have any confusion about that uh the people the people the people are not the problem. We can't blame the masses for being the masses, and and uh, and anyway, we we expect more, better uh, out of out of Barack Obama. He can do better. Um, having said that, um, I want to um, talk about uh, new democracy and America and Dr. King. Um, this is a, a little little letter I wrote uh, over the email. Back on Tuesday, October 23rd, 2012, um, says, Dear friends, I hope I'm helping someone see the light. The rest of you are already enlightened, so I'm not trying to preach to the choir, but to those lost people who need to know the direction of history. 
Dr. King was in the race for the cure of racism within the USA. Someday the story will be fully told. Malcolm X was the leader who showed me the way, i.e. we were to have civil rights by any means necessary. He was red. There was to be, quote, the ballot or the bullet, unquote. Foreign policy is a continuation of domestic policy. You have to remember the times. The USA was opposing communists viciously. They were assassinating our brothers who were conscious in Africa and throughout the third world. Malcolm and Martin were Afrocentric and committed to liberation and opposed to injustice everywhere. As Mao said, communists must have the largeness of heart to put the needs of the many above the needs of the few, including I and I. Obviously, those were not, not Mao's exact words. If a genuine revolutionary make a mistake, then you can charge it to their mind and not to their heart, at the risk of sounding ridiculous. Does anyone start to build without a plan, without a vision or a dream? No, first you measure the cost and decide if it's worth it. Longevity has its place. We forward it in this generation triumphantly. Sometimes you have to realize that you cannot get blood from a turnip. You either accept the turnip or you don't. We communists hate evil and love good. This is not the time to question our faith. Either you are part of the solution or you are part of the problem. As Martin said, we want all our rights, we want them here, and we want them now. I love the 99% in struggle. This is Robert. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, uh, for sharing the information with our people. Tonight our theme is geared towards information, education, and liberation. Brother Haki, I'd like to respond to the statement you made about Barack Obama making a statement of attacking the uh, the hip hop rap community for for the creation of the of Trumpism. Now, I will raise this question with, with, with you and Brother Moses today in the context of. In reality, we know that Barack Obama only have he only has really illusion of power. He's acting as agent for the for the for the real power for the rich. Now, the question to me is, what would be that motivation to order him to go out and make such a statement? Well, I think one of the things, Brother Africa, I think you're absolutely correct. He doesn't have that kind of power uh, in, in, in the general sense of the word power, but he doesn't have visibility. And so when you talk about visibility, you got to understand the role of, of propaganda. And so, therefore, the things they hear to say get elevated, and they're used for propagandic, propagandistic reasons. And so, therefore, my concern is one in terms of you know him being used for propaganda puppet for those musicians of real power. And so that's why I'm saying that. But I think his motivation in terms of saying what he's saying, I think is twofold. I think on one level, I think it has to do with some legitimacy, at least in his mind, in terms of the Democratic Party. I think his perception is that, you know, the Democratic Party represents the lesser of two evils. And so, therefore, given that, that, that reality, I think he wants to create a situation in which the Democratic uh, Party uh, 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 usefulness is, 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 uh, is, is established. So I think that's his motivation. 
I think also, I think, you know, uh, on the second hand, I think also there's a certain bit of opportunism that exists. One of the things that this man is getting paid a lot of money in terms of appearances, in terms of opportunity, and also in terms of opportunities, in terms of media and so forth. And so, therefore, it, it is in his interest, economic interest, uh, financial interest, to, to propagate certain ideas in which the ruling class finds uh, acceptable. And so, therefore, any time you criticize rappers, everybody's favorite enemy, then certainly you get some, some bonus points when those people in positions of power. So I think in terms of, um, you know, uh, self-interest, I think he understands it's his interest to continue to attack those who are powerless. So I think that is the motivation. And so one of the things, Brother Africa, you know, you know, like I said before, you know, my biggest thing is that, you know, like when, when he said these kind of things, the, the ultimate impact and what Brother Moses alluded to in terms of, in terms of the, 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 the rising uh, fascism that exists in society, uh, one of the things that you know people are hard pressed to believe that when we when you talk about history, you talk about those very bad things that happen in history. But let's, for example, you talk about Nazi Germany. You look at the, um, the, the the what happened, what unfolded in terms of uh, the slaughter of uh, the Roma people, uh, the Jews in Nazi Germany, and people think that somehow that could never happen in America. Well, one of the things we have to understand is given history, and no no country, no country is immune from the flow of history, and as such then we have to understand that when we talk about a society that's in decline, then we make no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. America is in decline, and that's very, very clear. And that's one of the reasons why Jerome Powell, the head of the uh, Federal Reserve, said nothing's going to change, because the bottom line is that they're locked in the system, which they can't change even if they wanted to, simply because the system is in, is, is in decay. And so, therefore, the system will do whatever and everything it do it, it can in terms of survival, and that's what systems do. Uh, some systems, by uh, definition, are, uh, uh, have, have a certain amount of inertia or resistance to change. And so this is what systems do. And so Barack Obama understands that. And so therefore he understands his access to you know, lots and lots of money is limited uh, as the system declines. And so in order to, 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 to benefit from what monies do remain, that you have to appeal to those visions of power, those who control the money levers, uh, in terms of um, saying things that are favorable to them to ensure that uh, you reap the benefits uh, monetarily or financially. So clearly I think that's my view in terms of why he said what he had to say, but I agree with you, Brother Africa. Uh, he doesn't have the kind of power in, in, the, in, the, in, in a much broader sense when we talk about the deep state, which is where the real power e exists. And we talk about the international level. We talk about, you know, the seven controlling families, oh, excuse me, eight families that actually control all the wealth of the world. So clearly we're talking, we're talking about real power when we talk about them, but Barack Obama is useful in terms of being employed of people in positions of power uh, when he said things that are, he know that are somehow uh, counterproductive. And Brother Moses, your take, what you think was his motivation of why they chose to make him, to make these statements against the uh, rap industry? And at the same time, why at this particular time? We do know he has a book is out now that they've been pushing, and um I'm really sort of trying to figure out what the purpose of his particular act, calling out the rappers. What's your take, Brother Moses? Well, let me say as a way of uh, kind of getting where I am on Barack Obama, um, I read his Audacity of uh, what was the Audacity of Hope. Audacity of Hope. I read that book. Uh, that's the only book I've read of his. Uh, but uh, he's I, I guess he's trying to be insightful and uh, and decisive and uh, 
some kind and present you know his 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 worldview uh, as best he can. And you know, I don't think he it means has has animosity in his heart. Uh, as best I know him, uh, uh, I just think people make mistakes and uh, they do things that are that are counterproductive and uh, and. Uh, I don't think you know it's like somebody put him up to it or anything. I mean, I think you know he's he, you know Barack Obama's pretty much got a lot of control over his 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 destiny uh, in terms of um, his resources that he's available to him. And he's a privileged person in society, and uh, he's a, I don't think he's he's conspiring with anybody or somebody's putting him up to to do anything. Uh, I just think he's he's he's, he's he made a misjudgment there, and uh, and he can do better. Uh, thank you. You know, one if our listening audience hear the discussion, they may raise a question that um, to take this time to criticize these rappers, well, the present administration under the direction of Donald Trump, there was many occasions and examples that should have been called out by people of his stature, but was not done, including him. So I just find it ironic he have taken time to do this and not call out the kind of reactions that we have seen from this present administration as relates to the overall functioning of this particular um, economy and this particular government. So I find it um, interesting. But be that as it may, we're in the seat. We'll take the heat as you define it. We'll stand behind it. Let's move forward. Again, this is Africa on the Move. To our listening audience, we're dealing with the segment, what's going on in your world and the community. If you have anything you'd like to say to share with us, please please feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Make sure you hit 1. So we can see you on our board, and we acknowledge the last four numbers. To my panelists right now, I would like to get your response to recently there was a real interesting um, program that came out. We um, only, I believe, during the week, and this program was being hosted by a young lady named Tammy Mack Lake Show, and she dealt with the topic of Africans or blacks buying guns, and she talked about the history of Africans buying guns, and she started out with the, at the time period of 1967 in Oakland, California, where the Black Panther Party members went into the governor, um, governor mansion, and they went with their guns, guns loaded, and to observe the General Assembly. And how there was a reaction, not only from um, Governor Ronald Reagan, but from the whole European community, and particularly the NRA, the National Rifle Association, where based upon the act, they support and call for special legislation barring Africans from being able to have guns, you know, out publicly. This was in '67 as response to police brutality during that time, which was killing African people during that time, which are the same thing going on today. She thought it was interesting that was the only time where there was a response 
to Africans on, or men carrying guns versus the day where we see you have all these white militias all over the U.S., over the world, they openly carrying guns, and there's no reaction from the government, and particularly they're giving support for the NIA to have the right to do so. What do y'all make of that phenomenon? That 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 pass, the pass of this whole question of Africans having the right to carry guns, and this whole question day where the European uh, communities, certain segments of them, openly display carry guns, and they have never been ridiculed for it, brother Haki. Yeah, well, in terms of guns, Brother Africa, I think, um, you know, we can go further back to 1967. We can go back to the Deacons of the Defense in Lyle County, Georgia, in terms of their understanding in terms of weaponry to protect against racist attacks, you know, by Klan and other uh, uh, fascist organizations that existed in the South at that point in time. Uh, clearly, uh, she, has a po- she has a point in terms of, you know, uh, one of the things when we talk about gun control legislation, if you want really gun control legislation, the quickest way to get that is to encourage Africans to buy weaponry. It'll, it'll change literally overnight. Uh, people will definitely want it. <laughs> one of the things I think we have to understand is that those people in positions of power understand clearly that African people are oppressed people. And so as long as we accept our oppression, then everything is fine. But see, but purchasing gun is an indication that you you are aware that you of your oppression, and of course the weaponry can be used to defend yourself. Because one of the things is that, you know, once you defend yourself, you know, it creates a challenge for the system. And so one of the things that those in positions of power don't want is a situation where or narrative where you actually create a position a condition in which the system has to defend itself in terms of not only you know is 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 is, is, is you know not only philosophically what it stands for. But but also in terms of just the, the kind of injustice that system uh, permeates. So there's a vested interest in positions of people in positions of power to make sure that that reality doesn't come to light. And so purchasing guns is a real threat on many many levels in terms of people in positions of power. I think one of the things is that when you talk about police brutality and, and you talk about killing innocent African people, you know, simply because of the color of their skin. Uh, one of the things that the people in positions of power understand that it's inevitable that given killing the African people, that it's inevitable that African people are going to conclude that, you know what, in order to protect me from the police, i got to be armed. And that's only a step away from people actually, you know, defending themselves against, you know, police violence, uh, police attacks. And so, therefore, as far as the system is concerned, you know, those kind of ideas, is kind of ideas, and certainly they, want, they certainly don't want to uh, permeate the society. And so, therefore, they want to discourage uh, ownership by African people by any means necessary. But I think that her point in terms of the kind of um, – in terms of kind of the, the opposition to African people, it's very, very historically uh, uh, documented. But you're right. And when you talk about this whole question in terms of, you know, you got uh, white white racists running around with weapons loaded to the heels. And the most recent example is this, this Kyle, Kyle uh, what's his name, Riddle, Kyle Rittenhouse, this guy out of Kenosha, Wisconsin, this, this young white boy who went around with a, with a, with a M16, um, or was it AK-47? Well, anyway, he was running around with a high-powered weapon. And uh, actually, you know, he after walked down the street and walked right past cops and wasn't even questioned about current weaponry of that that kind of caliber in the in, in the street. So clearly, uh, those cops' position was that you know, seeing a white person with that kind of caliber is just uh, par for the course. Now, imagine if he was a person of African descent and he walked down the street with a high power weaponry, past cops. Do you really think cops would simply turn and look the other way, or do you think they would question and say, "Wait a minute, ho, ho, ho"? Why do you have a weapon of that kind of caliber? 
of that kind of caliber and that kind of power? Why are you walking down the street, you know, with it? Or, or what purpose of the survey by you having it? All those questions would have been would have been raised by the police, and certainly those questions would have been germane in the context of you know on the open street, somebody walking around with a high power weaponry. Of course, you would want to know why the hell are you walking around with that kind of uh, weaponry. Uh, but they didn't. He was able to walk down the street, and no cop they, they looked the other way. As a matter of fact, they even they even joked with him, talking about buying him a cup of coffee. So clearly, you know, this kind of um, this this kind of dual standard when it comes to weapon weaponry ownership. Uh, it's something that I think is perhaps uh, uh, unique. Well, actually, it's not unique. I was thinking it may perhaps that it's uh, unique in terms of American culture, in terms of this kind of thing. But then the more I look around the world, and you see this kind of same kind of propensity of uh, availing itself. And it's very, very clear, you know, that this, this notion that white folks and weaponry go hand in hand, but African people and weaponry is something that should be avoided. So clearly, those people in position of power understand the systematic uh, abuse inflicted upon African people, and therefore seeing weaponry as a means in terms of not only defending themselves, but calling to question the kind of abuse uh, that's uh, that's inflicted upon them on a daily basis. So clearly, she she has a very 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 good, very good, good point. Uh, Dean, uh, the RNA was definitely concerned about when during the time 1967, when the, when the Black Panthers actually you know had these weaponry you know walking down the street, going to the state building in California and actually confronting people. In terms of in, in educating people, in terms of their right to, to to have you know to have access to weaponry and to use their weaponry to defend themselves against racist cops. So clearly, you know, she has a very 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 good point, and that's a lot of history to substantiate precisely you know what she was saying. Brother Moses, your response? Yeah, um, definitely. This AR-15, this young white boy was carrying, uh, it definitely would not. If it shows. Basically, there's an Anglo Brotherhood or, or Anglo identification of nationalism or something that goes on in people's minds, and so there's white skin privilege, and uh, obviously he was able to to enjoy that privilege of being able to walk around with an AR-15 after having actually used it, and uh, and that wasn't even wasn't even it was it was just like an everyday walk through the park, uh, no problem. Uh, it's, it's, that's real privilege. Uh, that's just the Anglo mindset, uh, looking out and seeing skin color and, and uh, identifying with it and uh, and saying that's, 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 that's good, that's good. Uh, and then if there's another uh, people of color come along, well, we got to question whether they're, Good or bad, or the enemy or the friend, uh, it's, a, it's a question in the mind. It j- immediately jumps up, and that, that's why the, the walking by faith and not by sight thing comes into play. Uh, um, but you know, history, the dialectical historical materialism, and people's people uh, are conditioned to be certain ways. And after all the slavery and enslavement we've been through, obviously there's a deep, deep uh, Anglo hatred of of, of people of color uh, is embedded in their sight, and uh, it takes uh, it takes a lot of work, uh, conscious struggle in the revolutionary process of of gaining liberation for black, brown, and all people, uh, all humanity. And that struggle, we, this these these psychosis will fall away. There will be a new person and a new 
a new human being uh, uh, taking place. Uh, thank you. You know, uh, panelists, um, when we look at that particular um, program dealing with Africans or black band guns, uh, one of the things came to my mind, and I'd like for y'all to elaborate on it a little bit, is again, once again, in terms of looking at history, it raised one fundamental question. African people have never been aggressive towards anybody to bring any harm to anyone. But it raises the question again, and when we will resolve this dilemma. And the dilemma is, do we as African people have the right to defend ourselves? Response, panelists? No question about it. Uh, no question about it. African people have a human right to def- defend themselves. Uh, one of the things that we don't subscribe to is being the aggressor. Uh, but certainly African people have the right to defend themselves. And anybody in the movement who said African people don't have the right to defend themselves, I have a serious philosophical problem with. Uh, clearly there are those who take a position, you know, that nonviolence, you know, uh, should exist at all across the board. My position is nonviolence is a, it's a strategical. Uh, it's, it's a strategical. Uh, in other words, uh, there are certain times in which violence has to be used, utilized in terms of in terms of protecting self or community. And so, therefore, you know, the reality is that you know, just if we want to get biblical, we're going to talk about the Bible in terms of your right to exist. Uh, fundamentally, you have the right to exist because it's part of creation. Uh, you have that 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 you have that right to exist. Uh, just in terms of politically speaking, and you talk about the Constitution, and you talk about in terms of you know the, the ability to live free. Yeah, part of that ability to live free is to live in a society in which you're not uh, subjected to, you know, any type of harm or potential harm, you know, from those people in positions of power. Now, and if that those two things come to conflict, the Constitution is very, very clear that you have a human right in terms of taking a stand, as well as the international right in terms of taking a stand to prevent those transgressors, those individuals who uh, want to inflict harm on you, you have that right to defend yourself. And that's based upon both constitutional and international, international law. So clearly, uh, you know, that's and one other thing, Brother Africa, I want to point out real quickly, because one of the things I, I alluded to now, uh, um, uh, I alluded to, uh, to, um, to, to the Deacons of Defense, and I attribute to, to Georgia. It's not Georgia. It's Lyle County, Alabama. <laughs> so I'm sorry. So I apologize for from the brothers and sisters out there who are historical. They said, what the hell did he just say? Did he just say <laughs> Georgia? I meant Alabama. But in any event, uh, yes, uh, you absolutely have a you absolutely have a human right in terms of defending yourself, and uh, don't let anybody fool you in terms of in terms of that right. Again, we don't advocate in terms of being aggressive. We're not saying that kill you know hurting people for hurting people's uh, for hurting people for hurting for hurting for hurting sake is something that we adopt we 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 uh, we approve of or we support. Uh, but certainly, uh, if you're in your right uh, on, in terms of uh, you know a con- a position a situation. Uh, which calls for you to utilize uh, force in terms of, you know, um, safeguarding your life, the life of the community, then it's okay. I don't see a problem with that. So philosophically, I have no problem in terms of utilizing uh, uh, violence if you have to, and I see it as your human right to do so if the situation calls for it. Brother Moses, and we don't, I don't view this as being violence. You know, being something, um, 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 displaying self-defense, you know, I think you got to be careful how they define that as being violence. You know, self-defense is just what it is. It's self-defense. But, yes, go ahead, Brother Moses. 
Yeah, um, I think it's Hugo Chavez and Che Guevara and um, Fidel Castro and so many other revolutionaries that said you have to defend life with life. And, you know, when, you, when you're faced with a fascist and uh, it's you, you, or, you or the fascist, you have to defend life with life. Um, even, on, even on a philosophical level, uh, I'm pro-choice and, you know, and, uh, and all that that means. And so I just think, you know, I've been in the military and I was taught you never lose your military bearings. You don't lose your military bearings. And uh, so at all times you have to, you have to know that this is a war we're in. Uh, whether you're, you're conscious of it or not, there's a war going on and the enemy is out to kill you. And, um, and you have to be aware when, when the situation is imminent. And so, um, yes, I believe in defending myself and defending the things that I cherish and the people that I cherish. Thank you. Uh, Brother Africa, let me let me raise Brother Africa. Let me raise an ecumenical argument, and that is, I hear what you're saying in terms of the the, the morality of it all. In fact, uh, you don't see it in terms of um, getting violent. You see it simply as as an expression of of of, of, of one's uh, reality in terms of the situation they find themselves confronted with. But the bottom line in terms of digression, I think one of the things that, irrespective of how um, uh, appropriate or how ne- how uh, necessary it is. Or how feasible it may be, the bottom line is that you are inflicting harm on other on other human beings, and so we can't get around that. And one of the reasons why, you, when you talk about nonviolence, nonviolence being extremely important, because the impetus has to be that we don't want to inflict harm on anybody, and we try our best not to inflict harm. I think African people, as a whole, do a very good job in terms of, of accepting this notion in terms of nonviolence, and trying to resolve situations where people don't get hurt. To the extent that even when we are we're we're vilified and, and, and terrorized and killed, we still maintain this position that listen that life is too valuable, and so therefore we're not going to inflict any 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 harm against anyone else, despite the kind of transgressions that are transacted against us. But I think that you know I think that but there's only there's a limit to 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 what extent that you're willing to play that game, because one of the things and just in terms of you know in terms of systems. When you allow injustice, or, you, or for lack of a better term, if you want to get spiritual, if you allow evil to exist, uh, it doesn't it doesn't decrease. It, on the contrary, it increases. And so, from a theoretical point of view, from an ecumenical point of view, you can always argue that allowing evil to in, to, uh, to 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 uh, increase uh, is a is a is a is a challenge or a, a real problem in terms of you know in terms of um, in terms of spirituality. In terms of these two competing forces that exist in the world, in terms of you know um, you know um, um, right and wrong, or, or you know um, so so I think that you know to to a large extent you know I, I I hear your argument though, but I don't think we can get around this question in terms of the, the inflicting harm part, in which we we try to avoid inflicting harm, but you get to a point where people who are say antisocial, or people who are uh, homicidal, people who are for whatever reason. Uh, immune to this whole concept in terms of uh, what is right, who, who hell bent on committing that which is wrong or that which is unjust and evil, who hell bent on committing these, these transgressions against people, then at some point it would be unreasonable to, to expect that people who are on the receiving end of these, trans, in tra, these transgressions, on the receiving end of this abuse, this receiving end to the exploitation, this receiving end of the killing, to continue to take it. 
So from a spiritual point of view, you have an obligation. From my point point of view, that you have an obligation to stand against injustice, to stand against evil, and not allow it to um, to proliferate. That is my position. So I'll close with that, Brother Africa. So if you want to respond to that, I would appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I don't think, you know, one can interpret or one can interpret, you know, based upon their own interests, but it don't mean it's the truth, but they have the right to interpret any phenomena that they encounter. But if one comes to bring harm or try to inflict harm on you and you're acting in terms of trying to prevent that harm, I don't don't view it as you're inflicting harm on them. I don't view it like that. That's just my way of conceptualizing uh, a natural human response in terms of this question of who is doing the infliction of harm. Because, you know, the first case, if you look at the conditions for the harm to take place, it only can take place if that's what you're calling it, when you are perceived as someone trying to pose harm on you. So I just take that position and don't view that like that. That was just, that was just my you in general, general position. And I'm saying all of that because I thought in that film, in the discussion on that show, they raised um, some fundamental issues that historically has played out against the African community as it relates to this whole question of our right to defend ourselves. And one of the things they talk about is the continued propaganda or how they label every time African people go into a mode of self-defense, defend themselves, we become the bad guys. We become villainized. We become the terrorists. Where you have a long history of terrorist activities being committed against African people and non-European people in this society since its existence. And we continue to fall for uh, the propaganda that when we decided to organize just to defend themselves and live in peace. And I think Brother Woodrick Rick McCarthy made a real interesting point. And it's historically, I think history will bear witness to this. He studied that when African people or people of non-Europeans pick up arms to fight to defend themselves, and they are non-violent people, non-peaceful people, he said it is they who are driving the people to the guns to act to defend themselves, not the people themselves just want to do that. They are forcing them to pick up guns to defend themselves. If you look at that behavior of Western Europe since its existence, I think there is a history of them going places, driving non-violent people, people, peaceful people, to be able to become, quote-unquote, as some would say, violence, and pick up the gun to defend and do them and do the right thing, to protect their community, to protect, protect their families, you know, there would be no Cuba today if the Cubans did not pick up guns to defend themselves. There would be no freedom today, whether you say in Zimbabwe, whether you say in, in Guinea, whether you say in Zambia, South Africa, if the people didn't choose to pick up their guns to fight against them. There would be no freedom in China today if the Chinese people didn't pick up their guns to fight against the British imperialism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They create the conditions to drive nonviolent people to become violence. Your response. No, you're right. You're right, Brother Africa. You're, you're absolutely correct. And that's that's the point that I'm making. Oh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I was I was getting at the question in terms of morality, and my my point was that 
I think if I'm hearing you correctly, essentially what you're arguing is that, you know, when I raise this issue in terms of morality, you see it as a privilege. You don't necessarily see it as in terms of a driving force in terms of people's behaviors. And so I'm saying that even though if we disagree and we look in terms of, you know, how this is, how the, the universe is organized, then certainly uh, we, we, we understand that there is certainly a role for peace. And so, therefore, if you want to create, bring into existence a world of peace, then you certainly have to act in a way that's very peaceful. And so I'm not, that doesn't negate the fact that certainly you're right, that when you talk about all of these movements around the world, whether you talk about Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, China, uh, 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 Zimbabwe, or wherever you're talking about, clearly people have always had to take up arms in terms of resist injustice. I mean, you've got no choice because the transgressor often doesn't understand the, 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 the value of life. In part, Brother Africa, when I opened up and I started talking about the role in terms of religion, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, as, 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 as a guiding principle in people's lives, the reason why I talked about that is because you've got a lot of people in the society who are quote-unquote are Christian who can justify the most, most unjust and most evil kinds of practices imaginable. And you ask yourself, how could this be? And it has a long, you're right, it has a long history in terms of this, this dichotomy, in, in terms of, you know, terms of good and evil, where actually evil is more pronounced than good. Often in the context of Western society, we're told, uh, you know, that to be selfish, to be uncaring, to be aggressive, to be um, discriminatory. We're told that that's just, that's what human beings are supposed to behave. And as a consequence, we have these, these, these Western philosophers who are propped up as models, role models to be emulated or to be followed. And so clearly there are those of us out there who have the position that, no, no, human beings don't have to be uh, individualistic. They don't have to be selfish. They don't have to be aggressive. They don't have to be uncaring. They can be, they can be the exact opposite of what society tells us that, that human beings should be. And so, therefore, when we talk about in terms of role, particularly in evangelicals in society, we talk about this notion in terms of, uh, you know, people, you know, when people pop up the, the, the negative as opposed to the positive, it is a, con- a recurring theme in the context of Western society and Western thought. And co- certainly, it's, it's not racism to say that. That is a history. I mean, that is a history. And if you, as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Mel, uh, Dr. Mel White, uh, who happens to be a European himself? Uh, one of the things that he talks he talked about in great deal, in terms of that 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 uh, that tendency, uh, in terms of Western Western society, to elevate those things that are negative, those things are wrong, uh, and to couch it in religious terms, even though what they're doing is clearly in contradiction uh, with scripture and or the universe. So, you, but you're absolutely correct. You have a responsibility. But one other point about that, I think. Just, just, to, just, just to solidify my point. Here's the thing. In 1980s, and this is the last time I'm going to deal all the time with, with this church thing, because normally I don't deal with, with, with ecumenical arguments, you know what I mean? Because the whole point is that, you know, mo- most of the time people who are in these churches don't, 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 pre- don't listen, nor do they appreciate these arguments because they're not willing to actually do the research in terms of understanding what you're saying. So normally I don't even deal with these arguments. But anyway, for this, for this reason, I felt I had to. When I look around me and see what's going on in the world, I got to raise this question in terms of precisely what role will spirituality play in terms of our survival, you know, as a species, you know, in the world. Uh, but anyway, but, you know, during the 80s, there was a concept that was, that was formulated, you know, by uh, evangelicals, uh, the Christian right, uh, called dominionism. Now, dominionism will literally state that the Bible should be translated literally. Now, the problem with this dominionism, it, it negates the spirituality. 
So spirituality essentially is this. Now, conservative churches, okay, now now here's the thing. Now check this out, Brother Africa. Now now when you when you ele- elevate spiritualism, essentially what you talk about the uplift of humanity. That's all you know, when I share that's what you're saying. So the uplift of humanity uplift all things. And that's essentially what spiritualism is African spiritualism is all about. Spiritualism general is all about. But check this out. In the 80s, uh, there was a, 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 a document called the New International Version of the Bible, the NIV. Now, in the NIV, under Psalms, uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 4, it says, changes, right? It changes this, this, this scripture. It says, quote, what is man that you are mindful, the son of man that you care for him, end quote. It was changed in the uh, New International Version of the Bible to, quote, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, end quote. Now, conservative church rejected these changes, embracing a humanistic approach to biblical interpretation because they say it lacked a messianic message. In other words, what they were saying is that humans are incapable of change. Only the creator can bring about change. In other words, spiritualism is rejected. Now, how absurd is that? When you start to think about the real fact that things changed, the people got together to realize things were wrong, so they changed laws, in fact, to, to, to impact not only human behavior, but to change the way human beings interact with, with each other. Laws made that possible. So the ability for people to change things to make the world a better world is possible. Now, these evangelicals are telling you that change is impossible because the creator doesn't deem it. The creation doesn't deem these changes necessary, then things should remain as they are. So clearly you got a lot of people out here perpetrating all kind of injustice, all kind of evil, all kind of suffering, and saying it's okay. And of course they're going to, if you indoctrinate to believe that, that, that your Bible, in fact, tells you that inflicting harm upon the powerless is a good thing, then of course you can carry out all kind of injustice. Recently you had a lot of troops out of Australia killing the people in, in, in Yemen. Now why the, hell would you, why the hell would you do such a thing? I mean, why the hell would you, why, why would you do such a thing? I mean, the people are harm. I mean, people are. I mean, I mean, I mean they, they, they're suffering from drought. The people are. I mean, they're really suffering. I mean, very horribly in, in in Yemen, right? So you kill these poor people who are suffering. I mean, who got no means, who have access to nothing, food, shelter, nothing. You literally killed them for sport. Now, what kind of mindset could create the justification to kill people under those circumstances? The role of religion plays a big part in terms of creating that mindset. In terms of this kind of destructiveness, it's fashionable. And this is why you have all this kind of injustice that exists in America, because you got between 90 to 100 million people, in addition to others, who believe that, in fact, that injustice suffered is just part of, is part of creation. And therefore, they want to see it persist. And so they have no problem in terms of killing people. Given that backdrop, given that reality, hell yes, you'd be a damn fool to say, oh, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm going to just let them do what they do. You've got to be a fool to, to, to subscribe to such a theory. So I agree with you wholeheartedly, Brother Africa. But having said that, understanding that even if I inflict, inflict harm on these people who are, who are the transgressors, the people who are responsible for all these problems that, I'm, that we're confronted with, I still feel bad about it. I'm not happy I, I take a human life. You know what I mean? You, you have to do it given the circumstances, but it doesn't mean that you have to be happy about it. So there's a certain amount of morality that has to come into play. In terms of in terms of the use of violence, or, or, or okay. Now the question in terms of you know they they, they tr- blaming us as term us deem us as terrorists 
or whatever they call us, whenever we pick up weapons, when we pick up, pick, up, pick up arms, of course, that's part of the strategy. Part of disarming us, part of the propaganda is that whenever we pick up arms, is to, is, to is to vilify us and, 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 and conclude that somehow that we are bad people simply because we pick up arms. While white folks are walking all over the place buying, buying on average, three guns, per, three guns per week on average. This is in America. So I understand your point, Brother Alfred. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with your point. I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. My only point is that morality, you know, even though it's subjective, and from my point of view, it has to play a part in terms of behavior. Because keep in mind, we all have, we all manifest behaviors. And so, therefore, morality is an expression of that behavior. And so, therefore, what we do or don't do is direct, is, is direct result of, 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 of morality. But that's my view. So maybe I'm... See, I'm being ecumenical in terms of my argument, but that's my view in terms of you know why I was responding specifically to the question in terms of in terms of morality, not the question in terms of defending yourself, because certainly you have a right to defend yourself. Yeah, no problem. We have one of our panelists who have just joined us, Brother Anthony. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Brother Anthony, we were just discussing recently there's a interesting show that dealt with the issue of Africans or black buying guns. And um, the host of the show, the name, actually the name of the show is Tammy Mack Lake Show. It's a show that comes on Fox Network. And we had an interesting dialogue on the whole question of the history of Africans buying guns and its response by this, by this country, by this government. And um, you know, it's 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 really interesting when the NIA, the only time they created any kind of opposition to buying guns and having guns was directly related to the one time when there was a uh incident that occurred in nineteen sixty seven at the governor house in California where the, where one of the Black Panther Party chapters went into the governor mansion with loaded guns as they had the right to bear arms and have guns on them, and everybody saw them as being the enemy. And that was the worst thing you do, while today it's running real rapidly where Europeans can walk around with guns all they want, and there's no kind of response in terms of um, to that kind of that kind of behavior. So we're discussing historically in the past, even today, this whole question around African people having the right to defend themselves, the right to have guns, and why we continue to get the same historical um, response, a narrative that there's something wrong with us when we have guns or when we buy guns or when we say we have the right to defend ourselves. Um, you just come in, you hear some discussion. Really just your general take on this issue, Brother Anthony. Yes. Well, um, and historically, the only way uh, Africans have survived is by, or any other people for that matter, is by defending themselves. Uh, Self-preservation is the, you know, it's the first law of survival. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the thing, and, um, you know, some of the points uh, that uh, Brother Haki made earlier point to the ahistorical view that a lot of evangelicals take inside the U.S. First, uh, 
couple of observations. One, human beings, if you look at history as a whole, human beings seek limitless progress, not and an, an limitless growth. That is part of our historical development. So, uh, you know, human is not, cons- uh, you know, uh, uh, human development is constrained by time and space, but we seek to grow and develop. And if you look at African history as a whole, it's been a, it's been a history of uh, 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 of human beings making progress from one from, from one stage of development to another. That development was uh, disrupted by internal contradictions inside of African society, as well as attacks by external enemies from throughout the world, including Europe, Asia, etc. And uh, and uh, uh, Africans survived by, uh, by 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 engaging armed struggle in order to secure their liberation. And uh, the history of every African society bears this out. And um, and as Nkrumah pointed out. Uh, the question of armed struggle is not a question of whether it's uh, uh, immoral or moral. It's a historically determined necessity. And, um, and uh, it's part of that, uh, that process of, uh, 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 between good and evil. It's really about the oppressor versus the oppressed. And uh, that struggle Africans have been engaged in for for hundreds of years, and uh, and uh, so uh, the, the, the and uh, so if you look at our his, uh, you, you know historical development, it is abs- it is correct for us to resort to whatever means are necessary to include to secure our freedom. In order to uh, to to further our human development, and um, and uh, let's see, and it didn't start, uh, you know, just start with the struggle of the Black Panther Party. It is a continuation. Even during the days of chattel slavery, Africans resorted to armed struggle in order to gain their freedom. And um, and uh, not the, the uh, and it wasn't out of uh, glee or anything. It was the fact that it was necessary in order to throw off the yoke of oppression. Violence, people don't understand, takes many forms, including starvation, poverty, uh, the, the the right to develop to one's hum, hum, uh, fullest human potential, is also also forms of violence. Not just uh, physical beatings upon the body, and uh, and those forms, uh, you know, uh, necessitate us uh, organizing to resort to whatever means necessary to secure our freedom. And um, I think people that dogmatically believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, misinterpret history 
and also historical development. And that, uh, and that, you know, um, and that, um, you know, it becomes necessary at times to engage in different methods of struggle. And only an organized people can adapt to the various forms of necessary forms necessary needed in order to secure our freedom. And, uh, and uh, the notion that it's okay for one group of people to resort to violence to justify their aims and not okay for another group is a form of racist uh, propaganda and uh, ideology and feeds into capitalism and, all, and other forms of human exploitation. Okay, at this point in time, you listen to Africa on the Move. I'm the host, Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. We're going to define it. We're going to stand behind it. Tonight, our theme is dealing with information, education, and liberation. We are discussing. Hello? 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 I'm I'm just sitting here. I don't know if something happened with the brother who was talking. Yeah, hold on, hold on. They, uh, we, yeah, hold on. We've been having problems with uh, yes. with, with people, you know, uh, intervening in the program. So anyway, hang on. He'll be back. Hold on. Yes, sir. Yes, we'd like to thank everyone for being patient and being disciplined. As we stated at the beginning of the program, we are having interruptions. We are being cut off and it's an act that we don't think is unconscious, but those are the kind of things you have to um, deal with as relates to a people who are seeking their liberation. We thank you for your patience. What we want to do right now in the segment is that today is November 22nd, 2020. This is a very important day to our people and to our movement. This is the day where our brother, Kwame Ture, will actually uh, made a transition in terms of being buried. He died on November 15, 1998, and he actually buried on the 22nd of November, 1998. We would like to pay some respect to our brother to talk a little bit about him and his life. And in order to do that, what we're going to do right now is we can go to some of the lessons and legacies they had left for us. And when we come back after some music, we will have an open discussion a little bit on our brother, Kwame Ture, and his brother legacy. Africa. Yes, brother. Brother, yes, brother, brother Africa, you got a sister that we're trying to get through. Um, I don't know if you, she's on the board. But she should push for one to get in. But she was trying to get through. She came in when you went off the yeah. air. Yeah. Okay. Tell her to try again. If she's on the board, I'm looking at the board. Tell her just hit one, and we will acknowledge your number. Please hit one, and let me see if I can take this call before we're going to break. Maybe this is this is a young lady. The last one number is two nine two three. The last one number two nine two three. You have any comments? That's or questions? my number. Yes, sister. You can, no, um, I really didn't. <clears throat> okay. uh, can you hear no me? No problem, sister. Yes, we can. We can hear okay. you. Okay. When you were talking earlier and you were disconnected or something, a brother said hello, and I just responded. 
that I, I uh-huh. understood what happened because you announced early on what would happen. Okay. I didn't really have Thank anything you. to say. I just wanted to listen. No problem, sister. No problem. If you do have anything to say, just hit one, and we'd love to hear your comments and your ideas. Because this show is for you. Yes, sir. Okay? We thank you for thank your participation. You. So we're going to do right now, we're going to... Uh, yes, Brother Moses. Yes. Yeah, before before we break and, and go into a new, new transition, I'd like to uh, um, um, get develop a little more the ideas that Brother Haki has brought up in terms of religion, et cetera. I'm just going to take about two seconds. between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. 
Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system, he's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come, and Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the mass of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chumpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. 
because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it? I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system. And there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have... No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm irresponsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. <laughs> got my clock right here. <laughs> <laughs> fact, I can say it in two words, black power. <laughs> <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course, and me, all I want is power. <laughs>
I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Niggas are scared of revolution, but niggas shouldn't be scared of revolution, because revolution is nothing but change, and all niggas do is change. Niggas come in for murder and change into pimping clothes, into streets to make some quick change. Niggas change their hair from black to red to blonde, and no black hair and lips will change. Niggas kill other niggas just because one didn't receive the direct change. Niggas change from men to women, from women to men. Niggas change, change, change. You hear niggas say things are changing, things are changing. Yeah, things are changing. Niggas things into black niggas things. Black niggas things that go through all kinds of changes. The change in the day that makes it rent and made black power, black power, and the change. That comes over them at night as they sigh and moan. Night side. Woo! Night side. Niggas always going through bullshit change. But when it comes for real change, niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are actors. Niggas are actors. Niggas act like they're in a hurry to get the first act of the great white host. Niggas start to act like Malcolm. And when a white man doesn't react to them like he did Malcolm, niggas want to act violently. Niggas act so cool and slick. Causing white people to say, what makes you niggas act like that? Niggas act like you ain't never seen nobody act before. But when it comes to acting out revolution, niggas say, I can't dig in action. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are very untogether people. Niggas talk about getting high and riding around in hells. Niggas to get high and ride to hell. Niggas talk about pimping, pimping that, pimping what? Pimping yours, pimping mine. Just to be pimping is a hell of a line. Niggas are very untogether people. Niggas talk about the mind, talk about my mind stronger than yours. I got that bitch's mind upside. Niggas don't know a damn thing about the mind, but they be right. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas fuck. Niggas fuck, fuck, fuck. Niggas love the words fuck. They've been there so fucking cute. They fuck you around. The first thing they say when they're mad is fuck it. You play a little too much with them. They say fuck you when it's time to TCB. Niggas are somewhere fucking trying to be nice to them. They fuck over you. Niggas don't realize while they're doing all this fucking. They're getting fucked around. But when they do realize, it's too late. So niggas just get fucked up. Niggas talk about fucking, fucking that, fucking this, fucking. Yours, fucking monsters, not knowing what they're fucking for. Ain't fucking for love and appreciation. Just fucking to be fucking. Niggas fuck white side, black side, yellow side, brown side. Niggas fuck angles when they want dollar side. Niggas fuck Charlie, Linda, and Sue. And if you don't mind, out, niggas will fuck you. Niggas will fuck fuck if it could be fucked. But when it comes to fucking for revolutionary causes, niggas say fuck revolution. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are players. Niggas are players. Are players. Niggas play football, baseball, and basketball while the white man is cutting off their balls. When a niggas play ain't tight enough to play with some black sides, niggas play with white sides to see if they still have some play left. And when the white sides you play with, niggas play with themselves. Niggas tell you they're ready to be liberated, but when you say, let's go take our liberation, niggas reply, I was just playing. Niggas are playing with revolution and losing. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas do a lot. 
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Our theme is information, education, and liberation. We're discussing what's going on in our world and the community. This is a first part of a two-part series. As we give you information and seek to educate and liberate our people to a higher level of understanding and struggle. We stated earlier today was a very special day in the history of our people movement because this is the day where our brother Kwame Ture made his transition in terms of actually being buried. Being buried. He died actually on November 15th. He was buried in his beloved home, Gaining Concrete. So what we want to do is take the next few minutes to acknowledge and honor um, our brother, and we're going to do this by you participating by calling in 323-679-0841 and share your views and perspectives on how we can best carry out the legacies, the legacy and the practices that Brother Ture exemplified in terms of trying to lead our people down the road in liberation. What did Brother Ture meant to you? How did you view his ideals? And how are his ideals today impacting our community? So at this point in time, we're going to open up the discussion to our political panelists, and we'd like to have Brother Haki lead our Brother Haki, as you think about our Brother Kwame Ture, his idea and his legacy, what are some of your thoughts you'd like to share with the listening world? I, I, the, thing that most, the thing that most impressed me about Brother uh, Kwame was his perseverance. And, you know, for those who don't realize it, you know, prom- Kwame's life was um, uh, very precarious. Uh, aside from the life of, you know, living the life of a revolutionary, the mere threats in terms of uh, being articulated by those positions of power, uh, desire, uh, wanting to seriously uh, do some, ver- ver- some bodily harm to Kwame was well documented. So whether we're talking about the FBI, CIA, we're talking about you know organized forces that was committed to the assassination of Kwame Ture. Fortunately, the, the Cuban government played a big role in, on one occasion preventing Kwame Ture from being assassinated. Uh, you know, it was a situation where he was in Cuba and he was on his way uh, to Vietnam to see Ho Chi Minh, and uh, the Cuban governments being aware of the situation uh, because they got extremely good intelligence and in Cuba. They turned the fight around and they subsequent fights uh, for Kwame, in which he went through to Russia, from Russia to Vietnam. So clearly, given that situation, uh, most people would say, you know what, you know, you know, you know, my life or the movement. Kwame's position is very, very clear. It's the movement, and my life is a mere, uh, a, a mere uh, testament of the concern, the compassion, or the love I have for my people, the love I have for humanity. And so, therefore, that means my life, and so be it. I'm willing to give it up. So people like that are very, very impressive. I mean, Kwame, like most revolutionaries, are very selfless. They do so simply because they love their people, they love of humanity, uh, you know. And so to do that makes a very special kind of person. Uh, and this is why, it, you know, you know, people are not uh, born revolutionaries. People evolve to become revolutionaries. And Kwame certainly was the quintessential revolutionary in terms of the principles that he conveyed, the the stance that he took. Uh, the this man in which he expressed those views and those principles. Uh, so he was very outstanding. So as a, as a, as a youth, one of the things I remember, he came over after the program to the house, and uh, we, a couple of kids were around along with uh, my mother, and we were talking to Kwame. And one of the things I asked Kwame at the time, I think it was about um, I was about 11 years old, and I asked Brother Kwame, I said, Brother Kwame, 
said, don't you get tired of trying to get people to realize what's going on? They don't want to hear that. And he smiled at me, and he said, yeah. He said, well, you know, he said, listen. He said, it's just a question of time for people to come around. They begin to see what you're saying is legitimate, it's, it's, it's germane. He said, but you know what? You know what? You can't give up. You got to keep doing what you're doing. You know, even if people, you know, resist initially what you have to say, but don't keep, keep the faith, you know. And so one day, you know, I suspect you're going to be out here, uh, you know, um, you know, trying to enlighten people in terms of this necessity, in terms of formatting movements, you know, you know, for the uh, for the benefit of humanity and the benefit of our people. So I want to greet immense gratitude to Brother Kwame in terms of the, who he was as an individual, as a person. And so for me, you know, I, I, you know, I'd be remiss not to say that it, Kwame did shape my life in terms of my perceptions, how I saw things. And Kwame, along with other revolutionaries, played a big part in that. And so I definitely I have immense gratitude and love for Brother Kwame in terms of all that he encompasses. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, your respect, your take on the life and legacy of Brother Kwame Chirin. Yes, um, um, <clears throat> yesterday on um, Missing Pages of History, I had a, um, a statement I made, uh, and I continue with that, um, basically uh, saying there's a spiritual church song, um, um, have you any rivers that seem uncrossable? Have you any mountains that you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things impossible. And so it's in that spirit, in that spirit that Kwame Ture took on the the task of liberating Africa, um, bringing about scientific socialism and a unified Africa, Pan Africanism. That was his specialty. That's that's what he devoted his life to, and certainly he he is to be honored and understood uh, for for the things he's done, and he's done a great many things. I think he was one of the first people. Um, him, Malcolm X, and others, uh, but he was one of the first to come out against the Vietnam War, and uh, and he was has been a light ever since. He's just been a light to the people and um, showing them the way in, in this dark and evil society we live in. And so um, I just thank goodness that he 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 was born and that he he did what he did and. I, I, and hopefully people will carry on the tradition and uh, and and bring about that day where Africa is truly liberated. We look forward to that day. Thank you. And Brother Anthony, as one of those who is a continuator and having heard many of the works and struggles that Brother Ture, um tried to exemplify while he was here for our people, how do you best remember Brother Kwame Ture? Uh, I best remember Kwame Ture uh, for his um, for his consistency and his determination and his love for Africa, and for reechoing the centuries' uh, cry for Black power. In addition to that, making it uh, him and and his contemporaries did a great deal of work. Uh, to instill a positive image of Africa among African people in Africa and the diaspora, especially the diaspora. 
you know, because, uh, you know, uh, you know, during much of the 20th century, uh, Africans were taking, uh, uh, you know, were taking a beating in all, in all sorts of ways, culturally, uh, spiritually, etc., and ideologically. And I think, uh, you know, his biggest contribution was to uh, was to help instill a sense of uh, of uh, a, a positive outlook of, of Africa among uh, among the masses of uh, 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 upcoming youth, and uh, that's what I remember him uh, for his consistency and his determination. Uh, you know, to see, uh, you know, Africa free and liberated. And I think the most important thing we can do to continue this legacy is to struggle for revolutionary change throughout the world and to uh, and to build Pan-Africanism, to achieve Pan-Africanism. And this will be the only thing, uh, uh, this will be the ultimate solution to the problems oppressing Africans throughout the world. You know, panelists, as we look at the legacy of Brother Kwame Ture, how can we protect it in terms of ensuring that it is presented, it is properly understood, it is not um, uh, um, shown in any kind of light, that will be contrary to his ideas and thoughts. Because, you know, many times when you look at heroes and sheroes, a lot of times the enemy creates propaganda to mislead our youth and our people as relates to our true heroes. So how can we best protect his legacy, Brother Haki? Very good point that you raise, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, irrespective of your political beliefs, your political ideology, uh, whether you're a, a, a communist, a socialist, um, historical materialist, no matter what you are, the bottom line is that, you know, until Africa is free, no African anywhere in the world is going to be free. That is without question. And so for those movements that want to dismiss Pan-Africanism as somehow uh, spookism or somehow a figment of someone's imagination, it's rooted in history and it's rooted in science. In fact, as we look at the situation as, as the situation in Chile, right, particularly when we talk about uh, neoliberalism and the, the impact, the negative impact it's having on people throughout the world, it's having a devastating impact on Africa, on Africa, not just on, on the continent of Africa, but African people throughout the diaspora. And we have to ask, ask ourselves a question, you know, so what is happening? The mere fact that this happened to all Africans, irrespective of where they are on the globe, speaks values in terms of not only the systematic abuse of African people, uh, but more importantly, what are we going to do as a people, you know, together in terms of confronting the systematic abuse? So Pan-Africanism is the key. There's no question about that. And so let no one deceive you and think, tell you, say, Pan-Africanism is unimportant in terms of scheme of things. Uh, Pan-Africanism is extremely important. And for me, I will always uplift uh, the teachings and the meaning of, of Brother Kwame Ture simply because he's absolutely correct. Brother Kwame went through a tremendous amount of political struggle to arrive at the situation, to, to arrive at the ideology, which is precise. Pan-Africanism is precise. It's not to negate or mitigate or to put down any other uh, ideology, because they're all relevant. All ideologies are relevant. Clearly, as ideologies, uh, to the extent that they define, you know, who the adversary is, 
they're all relevant and they all have their use their use and their purposes. But clearly, in terms of if we're talking about the, the, the final solution of African people, clearly there is no real solution for African people unless Africa is free. And there's no question about that. Africa must be free under the scientific socialist system, uh, and irrespective of these, these, these recent uh, announcements uh, glorifying the, 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 the um, venture capitalist uh, um, exposure in Africa. To the extent that when we talk about you know investment in in, in, in you know in in, you know, in in Africa infrastructure, not so much African infrastructure, but investment in Africa entrepreneurs, there's been an explosion in terms of this this, this practice, and many people have hailed that as 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 as, as a win. But let us not be deceived. Simply selling your product uh, or, or your your invention, you know, to some Western nation who has you know the economic control over what you build or what you created. There's no way stretch imagination empowers a continent or empowers a people. It merely empowers that individual. That individual is, 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 is inconsequential in terms of the overall need, in terms of the problems confronted the African people. So pan-Africanism is key in terms of bringing about uh, the kind of redress that we as a people must have if we are to have, A, longevity, and, 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 and B, uh, to be self-determined. And I'll close with that. Brother Moses, how can we be checked? The legacy and the lessons and the ideas of Brother Kwame Tree. I think you know um, one way we can honor and uh, and respect and and get more involved in the struggle uh, for Pan Africanism is to uh, study um, uh, Nkrumah tourism. Um, and what it had to say about the struggle and and, uh, and learn from the concrete people in Africa who who are faced with the concrete problems in Africa and and who know more about about the situation in their own communities than any other people. And so, you know, Africa will be liberated by Africa. Um, I um, I think you know there's a lot to be learned and uh, and. You know, this, the struggle continues. It's a lifelong struggle, uh, but I don't think I don't think victory is is out of reach. I think we can accomplish scientific socialism within my lifetime. I think um, that's how imminent I think the situation is. And so I I look forward to the struggle. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and to our listening audience, we welcome you to Africa on the Move. We are on the segment where we give our respect and tribute to our brother Kwame Ture. If you have any thoughts and ideas on his legacy of life, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. And please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. If you have any comments you'd like to make, please hit 1, or questions, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Brother Anthony, same question. How can we best protect the legacy of Brother Kwame Ture and his ideals? Well, those of us who claim to be the inheritors and continuators of the works and um, and struggles of um, Kwame Nkrumah, Ahmed Sekou Ture, and Kwame Ture have a special uh, uh, responsibility to ensure the integrity of uh, Kwame Ture and other Pan-Africanists by continuing 
in their footsteps and documenting and studying their works in order to bring the achievement of Pan-Africanism to fruition. And we must, uh, you know, we must defend and uphold the memories of uh, Kwame Ture and and, and numerous other Pan-Africanists at every opportunity that presents itself. And we and uh, and we must guard against uh, you know attempts to try to water down or misdirect uh, the, uh, the 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 lessons that were taught by uh, by uh, our African revolutionaries historically. You know, Brother Haki, one of the legacies of Brother Kwame Ture left was the importance of the identity question. He helped popularize and educate our people in terms of pointing them in the direct, right direction by making them understand that we are Africans. And we can see today the enemy is on on an offensive. Um, is very on, on the offense of trying to take our people away from their true identity. I mean... I would argue that if you look real closely at this whole Black Lives Matter movement, it's also a sophisticated attempt to undermine this whole issue of identity question and bringing us closer to Mother Africa. Will you speak on the importance of this whole question of understanding that we are Africans, period? Yeah, well, you're right, but I'm not going to, your peace with respect to Black Lives Matter, I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond to that piece uh, simply because, you know, I realize, um, you know, um, uh, the sisters, uh, you know, and the brothers who are part of that organization, you know, uh, are evolving. So I'm going to I'm going to leave that alone. I'm not going to respond to that. But I think. Hey, that, let um, me stop you for a second, brother Haki, and make a qualification. You are correct. I may have made an error, but I have not made an error. There are certain aspects within the Black Lives Movement is using it as a means. To undermine this whole question of the identity question, that is my position, and not the show nor the panelists. Now you may continue to speak. Thank you. No, no, you're right. You're, you're right, brother Africa. I, I got what you're saying. You're absolutely correct, and I, I'm aware of those those contradictions in the Black Lives Matter movement. But I'm willing to give them more time in terms of, to have internal struggle to deal with a lot of those ideas that they that they they believe to be uh, principled. Oh, but you know, I I agree, brother Africa. I think. Um, the identity is, is key. Uh, we have to understand who we are as a people. And from the beginning of the time, we've been African people, and we will continue to be African people. In fact, if you go right back down to it, you know, all people are African people. When you talk about the evolution of human beings, the scientific point, uh, a point of that all human beings evolved out of Africa is indisputable, and that's well, well known. So if certainly if, if white people can acknowledge that they're African roots, then hell, I, I, I would like to think that African people can at least acknowledge their African roots you know, so clearly we have to know who we are, because uh, it's, it's, it's important because if we're going to identify who our adversary is. Part of that has to identify who we are, and so in doing such, in doing so, uh, we can more effectively identify who the enemy is and devise strategies in terms of confronting our oppression. So it is key in terms of who we are as a people. And brother Moses, one of the legacy brother Kwame Ture left, and I'd just like to get you to respond to it and other panelists. I think it's a very crucial point 
that the masses of African people must learn and understand. And it's the point that he used to always make that African people or black people don't need leaders. They need organization. Your response to that statement. Um, ultimately, this is this is definitely no question. The masses and the masses alone make world history, and they must be organized if they, if there's going to be any progress made. And so, you know, obviously, organization is the key to uh, any any successful revolution. Um, I think back um, to the, the the most recent revolution, I suppose, would be in Iran when. Uh, the Ayatollah and and his uh, his people took over um, from uh, from the Shah. Um, that was a revolution. Uh, 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 a definitely qualitative change in society, uh, and so um, revolutions are still possible. And you know, it's not it's not as uh, far fetched as it may seem. But we must be organized. There's no question. We must be organized. But the part of the organization is the battle of the bullets. And uh, I'm, I'm for a democratic electoral process in terms of after the revolution uh, or, or and before the revolution. There must be um, um, some kind of um, democratic process because I'm not into kingdoms and little warlords and stuff. Uh, um, but anyway... I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Brother Anthony, can you articulate your perspective on that understanding of the statement? Because many times the enemy makes us think that we need a leader, we need an individual. And they always put the individual over the importance of organization. And from my understanding that, you know, if you don't have an organized base, it's only really through organization that you really can really create the climate and the condition to produce leaders. Organizations can produce leaders. Leaders don't necessarily produce organizations. But your response to that statement? That is that is true, and it's been demonstrated by the uh, by, by by historical analysis. Uh, leaders leaders have to have someone to lead, and uh, and and without organization, a leader is just an individual. And uh, so, uh, so it, it is true that the, that the masses are the makers of history. You do have uh, individuals that can be catalysts for change, which is true. But it is it is the it is people working together that make or break leaders, and also and and and, and change history. And so it is very important that uh, that we as a people get organized. It is in the process of organization that the appropriate leadership will emerge. And uh, that's been proven uh, by a careful analysis of history. And so I would say that people need to put in, and the emphasis on leadership is a consequence of the individualism that's emphasized under capitalism. 
and uh, re- and really in order to bring about our liberation and to uh, and to bring about uh, you know our unification, it takes the people working together. Because without people working together, uh, leaders uh, uh, that th- uh, leaders don't have anyone to lead, and there's no real leadership. You know, Brother Hackey, one of the things I think we need to be look at real, real closely when we look at the life and legacy of Brother Kwame Ture, he placed the emphasis mm-hmm. over dealing with systems, changing systems, and not dealing with um, issues, issues versus systems. And he also talked about or defined his enemies as systems and governments or institutions that oppress people. And one of the philosophies that, that, that serves as a tool of oppression is this concept that we call Zionism. Kwame was well known and well respected for his position of being an anti-Zionist. Can you talk about this importance of African people must come to understand the impact of Zionism and support that position of brothers who have been trying to take African people down the road for the longest time and many of our so-called African leadership African organization refused to acknowledge and deal with the issue of the role of Zionism as it relates to the oppression of African people and people in general. Yeah, well, let me just make a distinction between Zionism and, and Judaism. And we're clear that Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. Uh, Judaism is a political movement fomented by atheists uh, who call themselves Jews who have no allegiance whatsoever to the religion of Judaism. Judaism, as we understand it, originated in Ethiopia, and also when we talk about the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world, we understand that Judaism isn't a people, but it's simply those individuals who choose to embrace Judaism. Now, having said that, you know, Zionism is a very uh, vicious, a very vicious system. The same system that uh, exploit and oppress the Palestinians is the same system Zionists use in America for the sole purpose in terms of the continued exploitation and oppression of African people. So as a system, we understand that there may be individuals who are, who are, who are, who are not committed to the Zionist philosophy, but as a system, we can't discount the, the horror, the, the, the pain inflicted you know, uh, by that system on our people. So clearly, you know, Zionism is a system, and because it's a system, then it must be eradicated. Uh, simply, you know, uh, you know, wishing it so ain't going to make it so. We have to collectively understand precisely what Zionism is, the impact of Zionism, and why it must be eradicated. And I'll close with that. And Brother Anthony, before we make our final thought for the night, will you speak to the issue of the primacy of Africa and why the issue of primacy versus um, tactical issues of where we deal when we address our problems of liberation, why the question of primacy of Africa must be properly understood in this context that will allow all African people to overcome their oppression. Promise of the pan, uh, African and Pan-Africanism, those two components. Certainly. Well, one of the uh, well, one of the, the the lessons left by Nkrumah was that all people of African descent, what, uh, no matter where, where where in the world they live, whether in Africa or in the diaspora, are African and belong to the African nation. And so, uh, so, so for African people throughout the world, Africa must be primarily primary 
because it it is our only just homeland. And uh, one of the lessons that uh, that that Martin Luther King Jr. left off with with was uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and that is certainly true in the case of uh, looking at the history of Africa, and also the uh, and also the, uh, the 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 horror and oppression. And destruction that settler colonialism has left throughout the world, and that is why any uh, any justice loving African must be against Zionism, and uh, uh, because it is the same uh, is the same uh, ideology, ideological root as uh, as 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 uh, racism, heron vocalism. And all other manifestations of uh, what's called white supremacy, and uh, it must be struggled against and uprooted. And uh, the promise, and and it's important to understand that every people have a land base. This is why it's important that for for Africans, Africa must be primary first. And panelists, I'd be amiss if I didn't ask y'all y'all final thought in earlier brother presentation by Brother Kwame Ture. He stated that on basically two economic systems, either is capitalist or socialist. And Brother Ture left a legacy and were pointing people on the road of socialism. Why is struggling for socialism today is very important for oppressed people in particular and particular African people, panelists? I'd like to hear each one of your response. Start with you, brother, brother Hakeem, because they got us thinking socialism is bad, and they're telling us that people are socialists when they're not; they're really capitalists, and you become the boogeyman. So, how do we overcome all of this confusion and feel of the concept of socialism? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of disinformation and propaganda around socialism. That's precisely what the capitalist class want. They want people to not understand what socialism is. But one of the things I think I can express in a way which even the capitalists can agree with, one of the things when we, when we talk about socialism, we have to understand that in the context of a capitalist system, a certain amount of socialism doesn't exist. In fact, it cannot exist without socialism. And when we talk about, and to give you some examples, for instance, for example, uh, when we talk about the function of interest rates on monetary policy, and we talk about uh, let's say interest rates, we talk about uh, you know interest when you buy something, you you there's interest on it. Well, the interest is money that's made available to who? To wealthy people. So what's happening essentially is that money's being transferred from to the most wealthy, the wealthiest people. It's socialism. The only difference is that the the benefits that they accrue, the benefits to the wealthy, doesn't translate to any benefit whatsoever to the working people or poor people in the society. So what Kami is talking about, we talk about socialism, universal uh, scientific socialism, with the benefits accrued to the masses of people. So socialism is the most egalitarian system that exists. Now, one of the things that is certainly a process involved, uh, Cuba is a prime example, a very good example. Venezuela is a very good example. Nicaragua, a very good example. Even even when you look at China in terms of a centrally controlled economy, a very good example in terms of socialism and the impacts of socialism. One of the things in the context of China, one of the things they won't talk about 
is that they talk about the fact that uh, China's, do, uh, China's doing a very good job in terms of managing these resources. Well, China can do that simply because it has a command economy, and so you have people in positions of power to allocate those resources to make sure those, alloc- those resources are allocated smoothly and equally to our society. As a consequence, the society grows. They can't tell you that because it's, it's, it's socialism. The Cuban uh, President Xi understands clearly the, 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 the ultimate goal is to achieve socialism. But, of course, to the extent that you achieve socialism, it depends on people's consciousness. So you're not going to... You're not going to achieve full spirit. I mean, full um, uh, socialism if people' mentality is not there. People resin- continue to resist. As people evolve and understand the success of, 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 of socialism, then you can create fully fully socialist system in which everybody across the board uh, uh, would actually um, enjoy the benefits of the society. So it's a process when we talk about socialism. But no one should be deceived into thinking that these people that they prop up as socialists. Uh, in, in society, uh, socialists, but in fact, they're not. The closest thing they have to socialism now is currently in the uh, Scandinavian countries. That's as close as the socialism you're going to get. But even in that context, it's not, it's not universal socialism to the extent that everybody across the board benefits. So clearly, you know, uh, socialism is a process, and uh, certainly is, uh, is, is a process that has to start in the continent of Africa. Brother Moses. Socialism, scientific socialism, socialism <clears throat> where the working class is in power um, and the working class has its organizations and and uh, throughout society and uh, is able to organize society and, and the means of production and uh, feed itself and it's, 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 it's the world, basically. And you know, this is the this is a lot. This takes a lot of organization. It's, you know, verbally you won't bring it into existence. It's going to take real work and organization, and uh, a lot of communication. Of course, goes with organization, and uh, people have to be on one accord. There has to be a, a, a new democracy, a new, uh, which is socialist in essence, and. Uh, a mentality that uh, that you know, without illiterate people, it, it's impossible to really build socialism. That's why Cuba was so big on on literacy, because you know people have to be aware. It takes the consciousness, political consciousness. And right now, you know, people should be aware who Donald Trump is and what his motivations are, and and what he can do and won't do, and what he will do. And but people have to have the time and the energy and the, the 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 desire to know that this is part this is vital to their survival uh, and and part of their self determination up until including independence is to is to be able to to see the world for what it is and respond accordingly and know who your friends and who your enemies are. But this is a, this this is a lot easier said than done. Fidel Castro used to spend hours talking to his people, uh, telling them, you know, trying to make them aware, because the enemy is, is permeates permeates the the environment, um, and you and we're relying on internal contradictions to, to maintain revolution and the movement and the organization structures that have been put in place have to be adhered to, etc. And so, you know. We 
have to we have to be organized. And if those who are not in organization to get in organizations, I agree, and uh, we have to be organized. Thank you, brother. After your take, as well as as a continuer and inheritor of the work and life of brother Kwame Ture, where you talk about your organization, the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC and how people can join it and or support it. Certainly. Um, Kwame uh, Ture never uh, tired of pointing out that there are only two economic systems in the world, scientific socialism or capitalism. And that is because any economic system has to has to answer one fundamental question: Who will own and control the means of production? And there are only two possible answers to it: either all own, or some will, or a few will own. And uh, socialism is in the interest of the masses of humanity. That is why. The, it, the future scientific socialism will, will will defeat capitalism in all of its manifestations. The All African People's Revolutionary Party is a small, independent, revolutionary, pan-Africanist political party. Our objective is pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, and, our, and we're guided by ideology and crumism terrorism. And uh, for people who want to learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party and join or support it, they can visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, to learn more about the history of Pan-Africanism our objective, and more about the development of our ideology in Kumism terrorism. And, and, uh, and I do know, uh, Brother Anthony, you may want to make a clarification and distinction between the official name of your organization because that makes a difference understanding the various movements that have taken place in the parent African movement. And I believe you represents the AAPRPGC. That is that is correct. And um they are there are um we 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 are one of uh many pan Africanist organizations uh throughout the world and uh we and uh we uh and uh we think at at this stage that we represent one aspect of that um uh, you know of the solution to the problem of uh, of imperialist oppression throughout the world our objective is pan africanism one unified socialist africa and uh we represent uh the uh we're the all african people's revolutionary party g c we're based in africa and 
our ideology is incumism to racism. And our objective is pan-Africanism. One unified socialist Africa. And um, you can find out more information about us by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Okay, panelists, we'd like to thank you for your participation on the first part of two-part series titled Information, Education, and Liberation. We're going to take a quick cultural break, and when we come back, we'd like to have y'all final thoughts for tonight. This is Africa on the Move. Passport Rev. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon Dumb Legend. There is. What if my had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man? I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. This last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. Who wasn't just a consumer? Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy and go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? Use a hotel hustler. Trying to feed people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence or forever be our own town. All I want to say is I'm giving it away. So ain't for sale and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Fight behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause tomorrow I had Twitter. Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people to the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause tomorrow I had Twitter. And Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new I said, what if we've been lied to, most of our freaking lives Henry, you're coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right Your arrogance precedes you What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry Hieroglyph is writing on walls you couldn't take from me A man lay dead in the street today I must have hung my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength to make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the 
You are welcome to join us on every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. We want to give our people information so they can thank and we want to provide organization for you so you can thank more clearly. We recognize that this is the first part of a two-part series, Information, Education, and Liberation. And like always, we must remember our heroes as heroes, and tonight we, we, we pay a homage to our love, beloved brother Kwame Ture. Until next time, let's always strive to go forward our backwards novel. As your host, Brother Africa, remember, Africa is on the moon.
modern time you can't help but say the word Palestine people there have lost their land some have lost their home they live in other countries their freedom almost gone Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom freedom. Palestine Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine. Needs her freedom, Palestine. Needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. 
news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. To get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been. And made it through my journey, yeah. And made it through my journey, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters. From Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go.
Yeah, 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 yeah. 